0: The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. It may uh, admit more than I want to acknowledge to you, but one of my pet peeves is when uh, a scripture is read in church or printed in a publication and a uh, part is left out right in the middle of the reading. And there's a little ellipses and I cannot help myself uh, but to reach into the rack and pull out a pew Bible and go exactly to that place that is left out. Because I want to know, what are we skipping over? What are we missing? What are we afraid to expose ourselves to? You know, what what's what are you holding in the hand behind your back? And we do that from time to time. We do uh, skip over a part of the scripture. Uh, Because uh, sometimes we don't have time, but other times it's that we don't know how to fit that into what we believe about Jesus Christ. We don't know how to make sense of it. Possibly we're somehow threatened uh, or made anxious by the presence of those words in the middle of Holy Scripture. Our text today, in fact, the whole of it is just one such text uh, that is commonly skipped over. I don't know about you, you probably have read it, but uh, I would be surprised if if you're any different than I am in having never heard a sermon preached on Psalm uh, 109. And there's good reason for that. It's a very challenging uh, sermon. I was reminding myself as I'm looking at it this week and thinking, why in the world did I pick this uh, psalm to preach? (laughs) This psalm is what we call an imprecatory psalm, uh, an imprecation is a curse. The psalm is not itself a curse, but it's a prayer for bad things to happen to somebody else. And now that's troubling. That's not what we come to church to hear. And those are not prayers that we're particularly inspired to pray. And so you've come across these psalms. How do you handle them? Uh, I I think you're probably not that different from me and puzzling over them, trying to make some use of them, but then sort of feeling like it'd be better if I get on to another psalm. This Psalm 109 is, of all the imprecatory psalms, commonly considered to be uh, the darkest of them all. As a matter of fact, in medieval times, uh, spiritists would use Psalm 109 as a prayer to death. Uh, thinking at a magical incantation that could pray people to death. You might try that on the freeway. Um, I don't think it actually uh, works, though. And so, Connolly it's just it's just skipped right over. We just miss it. And I'm just the kind of person, as I said to you, that wants to know what are we missing. But I just wonder, as I told you recently, the Apostle Paul is just convinced that all Scripture is God-breathed, that all of it is beneficial, that God has put even these parts of the Bible in there for some spiritual benefit, for our edification. And so I wonder what we're missing by not wrestling with these passages I worry, I think, that sometimes in our selectivity we may be simply confirming the biases that we bring to the text and not allowing it to challenge our presuppositions and to speak something fresh and new into our lives. So with that, by way of explanation, why in the world we are looking at this text this morning, let's open up to Psalm 109. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 488. Before I read the whole of the psalm, I want to call to your attention verse six, because here you see a feature of um, the discomfort that we have with this psalm. The translators of the new revised standard version, the translation we generally read here, uh, have inserted two words at the front of verse six. They say. And uh, fortunately, they've got the integrity to tell us that those words are not actually in the Hebrew. This is an improvement on the text. And uh, what they're trying to do is mitigate the horror of the uh, the, the, the long cursing section of this passage. And verses six through twenty are all or nineteen rather are all now in quotation marks. This is a, an attempt to relieve the discomfort that we have with this text. And now the imprecation is not on the lips of the psalmist, but it's put on the lips of his adversaries, who pray this against him, and that relieves us a little bit. But I don't think there's justification for doing so. They, they, scholars would tell you the reason they have done that is because you see a, a shift in pronoun from plural to singular. And it could be that that's the right reading, but I think not. I think that's more a reflection of our own discomfort than the intention of God in this psalm. So I will, as I read, omit those first two words that they say, because I think these are the words of the psalmist himself. Listen as I read Psalm 109. Do not be silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They beset me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, even while I make prayer for them. So they reward me evil for good, hatred for my love. We'll appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand on his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another seize his position. May his children be orphans and his wife a widow. May his children wander and beg about. May they be driven out in the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. May there be no one to do him a kindness, nor anyone to pity his orphaned children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his father be remembered before the Lord. And do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually and may his memory be cut off from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the broken-hearted to their death. He loved to curse. Well, let curses come on him. He did not like blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around himself, like a belt that he wears every day. May that be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O oh Lord, my Lord, act on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love Is good? Deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is pierced within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. Let my assailants be put to shame. May your servant be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a mantle. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the thong. For he stands at the right hand of the needy. To save them from those who would condemn them to death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, wow, that is strong medicine for church on Sunday morning. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a wonderful little uh, book called "Praying the Psalms." Any book that's little in my uh, mind is wonderful, but <laughs> this book in particular expounds this wonderful notion that the Psalter is the prayer book of our Lord Jesus. He teaches us to pray through the Lord's prayer, but we find him, Bonhoeffer argues, actually praying in the Psalter. Just as the Psalms are humans' words to God, and Jesus is God in human form, these words are his words, then, praying prototypically to the Father, And we're invited to pray alongside of Jesus Christ in praying the Psalms. But I've scratched my head this week and I've asked myself, is this a prayer that Jesus Christ could pray? Can you picture Jesus praying this prayer? Well, to answer that question, let's look at the man who seems to be praying this prayer. We don't know a lot about him. As I've told you before, these superscriptions that ascribe the text here to David are not inspired. They're added later and they're grammatically ambiguous so that I'm not even sure if it says from David or for David or by David. We really don't know. So we shouldn't assume that David necessarily is the author of this psalm. We're not given a lot of detail then, except we are given this. Two experiences, two very emotive and powerful experiences. I want to look at those two experiences together this morning. The first is this. The psalmist feels what I call the pain of love. The pain of love. We don't know exactly what is happening to him, but from the first five verses and some other places in this psalm, we piece together that he seems to be falsely accused. This is the crisis that he faces. There are a group of people, perhaps a large number of people, who are lobbying false charges against him. They're saying, you have done this. He has done this. It's not true. Uh, But they accuse him. And it seems like there is one who is a leader among them. This is why I think we go from plural to singular. Uh, We see in verse 8, for example, he says, May his days be few, may another seize his position. So he's got a place of prominence. He's got an office or a position, some kind of a leader, a ringleader who leads the charge of accusation, the assault against the psalmist. And this assault is unjustified. We see that the psalmist is saying, hey, I've been praying for these people. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not sure I'd want this guy praying for me. But uh, we get the impression here in in verse uh, 4 that the kind of prayer that he offers for them Is a good prayer because he says, uh, "They reward me evil for good. I give them good. They reward me hatred for my love. I love them." So that his fundamental commitment, even in the midst of receiving abuse, is to love. This is a surprise to me when I notice that that his actions are loving, and this is all he gives himself permission to do. Is to love in the face of abuse, not to return evil for evil, or hatred, or hatred for hatred. A lot of us have the conception that the uh, Old Testament is sort of sub-Christian, and that the the ethic that binds us to love is really a New Testament innovation. But in fact, that's not true. The command to love is as deeply embedded and central to the Old Testament as it is to the New. Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate in your heart. Uh, Leviticus 19.18, and uh, this is where the second of the greatest commandment comes from. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see here that this psalmist in what he is doing is nothing other than fulfilling the obligation to turn the other cheek. Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not a quote of the Old Testament. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in fact, this is what we find the psalmist doing. He commits himself to love. But it's not the kind of love that warm sentimentality rewards. It's not the kind of love filled with affectionate feelings as we walk hand in hand uh, with a a lover and grow deeper together day by day, as we enjoy new friendship and, and thicken relationship with somebody. This is the kind of love that comes, is offered in the face of great animosity. It's the kind of love that hurts uh, literally hurts to share. This is about devotion, not emotion. And devotion, frankly, not so much to the person who immediately receives the love, these accusers, but devotion to them for the sake of their creator and redeemer. Love to God inspires my love to these who are angry and bitter towards me, even those who curse me. This is the kind of love of a martyr, a martyr's love that loves to the very end. This is the kind of love, by the way, of David. You know, David was anointed as king of Israel, as a young man. And yet he did not reach out to seize power in any way because Israel already had a king. And the Lord had anointed before him Saul. And even though Saul begins to degrade psychologically at the end of his life and Dips into fits of jealousy and rage and throws a spear at David and hunts him like a dog to his death with armies. David will not raise a hand against Saul. He will share with him and offer him nothing but love, the cost, the risk of his own life even. David demonstrates this same kind of love even in the face of the cursing. Of Shimei, let me read to you from 2 Samuel 16.5. tells a story about someone cursing David very violently. When King David came to Bahurim, a man of the family of the house of Saul, it's one of Saul's descendants, came out who was named Shimei, son of gira He came out cursing. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. Now, all the people and all the warriors were on his right and his left. And yet Shimei shouted while he cursed, out, out, murderer, scoundrel. The Lord has avenged on all of you the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, David, Absalom. See, disaster has overtaken you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and all his servants, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my distress and the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, throwing stones and flinging dirt at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Do you see how David walks lovingly in the midst of cursing. This is the love of the psalmist. It's the love of believers for a vindictive boss or an employer. It's the love of believers for a bitter spouse who erupts in criticism and anger constantly. It is the love of uh, those who have friends who profess loyalty and then behind their back betray them. They say in Los Angeles now things are getting so bad they're stabbing each other in the front. <laughs> this is the love of Jesus who washes the feet of his betrayer, Judas, on the night that Judas betrays him. It's a painful love. And by the way, the early church will ascribe this psalm to Judas. Verse 8, may another seize his position, is cited in Acts 1.8. So these accusers are seen as anticipating the accusation of Judas against the righteous Jesus. So this is his first experience. It's bearing the weight, the pain of love, holding it in love. The second experience we see in verses 6 and following is what I would call the rage over injustice. Somehow he's able to hold the pain of love with the rage Of injustice. That's the imprecation. Now, I want to say uh, four things about imprecation just very briefly because they're commonly misunderstood. And this may help you as you read other psalms as well. The first is that none of them is about individual vengeance. Private retribution. Notice in verse 6, the context here is the courtroom. He says his prayer is appoint a wicked man against him. That's an accuser. A prosecutor. Put it on his right hand. We need someone to come and make the case against him in a court of law. This is forensic legal language in, in this imprecation. So he's not saying, I'm going to go out and bust some teeth. He's not asking God to go bust some teeth directly. He's saying, I just want justice to catch up with this man. I want the duly authorized social processes of justice, God, that you have instituted among your people here in Israel to bring justice to this man. It's not a private vengeance. It's very personal, but it's not private. It appeals to the public justice. It's not. A, secondly, it's not a personal offense. It's true that this psalmist is wounded, but in the charge he makes, we see in verse 16, he's not appealing to uh, his own injury. He's appealing to a history that this man has of systemic, continual injustice. He's arguing that he has blood on his hands. He has left a string of poor children, orphans, widows, and dead people. He has lived his life as a living curse to others. He's consumed the resources of others. Violence has been a garment. These are all violations, not of the psalmist's um, sense of sovereignty, but of God's sovereignty, of God's law. He's appealing to the the provision of the law that he's been given in what we call the lex talionis, the law of retribution. The law of retribution was the one that said an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Now, you and I may not like that law. That may seem uh, violent to us. But in the ancient Near East, in in the time in which that law was given, it's actually a restriction on the kinds of punishments one could extract from someone who had committed a crime. If instead of taking someone's eye uh, for taking my eye, I'm going to go and kill them. And God is saying through Moses, no, there has to be parity. The, the uh, crime has to be uh, well balanced with the punishment. And so in the same way, this psalmist is appealing to nothing other than the provisions of the Old Testament. He has cursed. Let him be cursed. He has produced orphans. Let his family be orphaned. These are the prescriptions of Deuteronomy 32, and he applies them. The third thing is that he doesn't ask for eternal punishment. He's not praying that this man or these people will go to hell. He's appealing to the social code that God has given Israel, which is about being a society that represents God's goodness and glory, a community that's blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And so what he asks for is what one theologian calls social nullification, He's not saying may they go to hell eternally. He's saying may they be expelled from the community. May their memory and name from the community uh, be expunged so that nobody will suffer from them, so that we can be the people that you have called us to be. The third, uh, fourth and the final uh, point about imprecations is that they're not literal threats. Remember, we're reading poetry in the Psalter, and poetry draws on colorful imagery to capture emotion. And so we see hyperbole used here. And the hyperbole is there so that we can feel the pain, so that we can feel the passion when sometimes our hearts are too cold. What the imprecations are doing is that they are yearning for justice. This is a rage over injustice. One of the news stories that I most enjoyed in the last couple of years was a little piece Um, about some Tibetan monks that had received some official representatives of the Chinese government for some negotiations over Tibet. And, you know, I I have a really high view of Tibetan monks. I don't know one or know much about them, frankly. But I imagine that they are a very serene, peaceful, uh, thoughtful people and um, who have a kind of a spiritual discipline about them that's admirable. And so what I, what I loved is that they came out of this meeting and what, they were so infuriated over the, what the Chinese had shared with them that they took the official's car and just dented it and flipped it over. Now, I think if a Chinese, if a, if a, if a Buddhist monk, you know, can, can find a breaking point where they will go into a fit of rage and say, that's enough. We just had it. We've talked to these people, but they're not going home in their nice uh, BMW, you know. <laughs> there is a point. There is a point when the threshold of injustice becomes intolerable. When godly people will say, that is enough. When we will be sent into a rage over injustice. And sometimes I wonder if the reason we are uncomfortable with these psalms is that we have become a little too comfortable with the injustice of this world. When for us, distant genocides have become... Uh, Just too acceptable. We become too accustomed to racial or economic apartheid in the world. Too comfortable with environmental degradation or agricultural hoarding. Uh, Too comfortable with educational inequalities in our own society. Uh, Too comfortable with the brutalities of the sex trade. Or with the degradation of the pornography industry. Maybe somewhere deep inside me. I feel that this psalm implicates me in some way, as I have been comfortable with injustice. Sometimes our hearts become insensitive over time. David understood this. Nathan understood this. One day, Nathan had to come to David and sensitize him. He said, David, there was a man who had uh, a hundred sheep, but he went and he stole the sheep of this one man, the one lamb that he had. And the text tells us how David responded to this little parable. It says, 2 Samuel 12, 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did such thing. And you know the story. Nathan turns to David and says, You are the man. But he has just woken him to the rage of injustice. He's put a defibrillator on his heart and zapped him and said, feel it. Feel the the emotion, the anger over injustice. Jesus Christ gets angry. We see him angered when religion has been commercialized in the temple. We see him angered over the lack of compassion that people have for a man who's got a withered hand. We see him angry at the self-righteous religious of his day. We see him in the final chapters of the Bible riding on a white horse with a sword, which is the word of God, protruding from his mouth, exacting justice over all those forces and powers on the earth that have oppressed and use vengeance as their tool. Jesus will not be domesticated. He does not yield himself to be sort of a a chaplain or guardian of Victorian middle class ethics. Jesus is dangerous. He gets angry at injustice. How could Jesus pray this prayer? Can Jesus hold the pain and the rage together? Can He hold the love and the yearning for justice together? I think He can. I think Jesus is the only one who can. And I think the place in which Jesus does that is the cross. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ That evil and injustice is ultimately unmasked and revealed for what it is, as violence against God, as violence against all that is good in creation. Uh, It's an offense to life itself. And we see that as the Son of God hangs on the cross. It's also that place It's the greatest revelation of God's love for a sick and perverse world, because they're the one who is absolutely righteous hangs, to bear, to absorb all the guilt, all the shame that I could ever create and generate, that you could as well. This psalm turns in its conclusion to a prayer. I believe a very sincere and heartfelt prayer. We see in verse 26, the language of the Exodus starts to emerge. We see words like save, help, deliver. This word save is the Um, the same word that Joshua, who leads Israel away from the Exodus. It's the same word for Jesus, the Savior. His name, Jesus, means saves. He saves. It's the same word that we'll cry out next week as we welcome Jesus triumphantly into Jerusalem. Hosanna, let us be saved. This is the prayer, save us. And then the affirmation at the end, verse 31, for he, that's the Lord, stands at the right hand of the needy to save them. From those who would condemn them to death. There's irony here because there have been two references to the right hand. Here in verse 31 and earlier in verse 6. His first prayer had been, appoint a prosecutor to stand at the right hand and convict the guilty. And now he prays, let there be a savior at the right hand. We see both at the cross. We need both in order to have peace in the world. There's a great idealism and optimism that is not well founded. H. Richard Niebuhr commented on the, what he called the liberalism of the 20th century. And he criticized it. He says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And there'll be no peace without a cross. Uh, Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F, as in Frank, is a theologian at Yale University, and he's written a a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And Volf is a Croat and a professor, a scholar who's lived through the Yugoslav Wars. And he makes the case in this book, this is kind of 300-level reading, it's a little challenging in places, but it's a wonderful read, I recommend it to you. He makes the case in it that the only way Human beings can work for peace in the world is if there is a God who pledges himself to punish evil and to bring justice ultimately. And the place in which God has done that is in the cross. And so at the very end of the book, Wolf says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And this thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of that thesis, the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. As one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. You should be very careful before we imagine that God does not intend to bring justice through the cross. There's no other way of understanding the cross apart from God's great desire to punish evil. And There's no other way for hope in the world. There's no other way for you and me to relinquish our anger and our craving for vengeance when we face those who have been so brutal in the world other than to release those feelings to the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to close with uh, three implications very briefly. The first is to admire Jesus, to admire him, to fall at his feet and worship him because he is the only one who can bear such a load of weight of love, and who can truly and justifiably rage against injustice. He's the one who can pray this prayer. And because he does, we don't have to. The second thing is to commit ourselves to a passionate expression of love and justice. To be passionate about these two things, to be exercised about them in the same way that the psalmist is. To hold them together and to work for peace in the world simply because God has given us the cross. To follow the crucified Christ into the world, not with power, but with love for justice. And so it's interesting, I see in the bulletin insert you're invited in the next three weeks to a series on reconciliation at the 1130 hour. Alan Belton will be leading. And I would encourage you to think about that, to look for practical ways of working for justice in the world in the name of this Savior. And the third and final implication is this. Let's learn to pray through our anger. To pray through it. There's a liberation in knowing that we don't have to act on it because God already has and that we can be freed from that anger by lifting it to Him. Not blow it out, not stuff it in, but lift it up and let Him take it to the cross. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit. You define life. You define love. You are love. But it is the passion of that love that is jealous for life. And you move out to oppose anything and anyone who will stand against life for all of your creatures, for this whole creation. And so we come to the cross, first of all, knowing that we have offended. We come to the cross believing that it stands for our sin. And we come to rejoice and to give thanks because we are a people now who can confess that there is no condemnation for us. Because Jesus Christ has taken it. Just as there is no condemnation for us, there is no condemnation for anyone who will receive this work of grace. And so we are free now to cry out against injustice, but also to embrace its perpetrators in love and in mercy, to point them also to their salvation and forgiveness at the cross. May we be a people who live in just that way, with so much love that it hurts at times, and so much yearning for justice that there is peace. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.